Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 33. Welcome to this hour that you and I get to pause the world and connect through space and time. 2020 has been a year that we've had to deal with so many things, so these moments that we share here are invaluable. As I'm recording this, I'm in my apartment on 25th Street and 2nd Avenue in New York City. It's a small place, about 300 square feet, that's about 30 square meters. It's 6 p.m. and it's already dark outside. And I'm imagining where people are as they listen to this. A lot of our listeners are from New York City and the USA, but we have a number from Canada. Is there already snow there? Are people listening all cozy on the couch drinking moose milk? Or are they out on the mountainside riding moose? Or is it mooses or meese? On the other side of the globe, our listeners in Australia and New Zealand countries that skyrocketed to fame this year because they worked to prevent the spread of germs. They may not have tourists, but they don't have to wear masks, and theater and live events and crowds are able to happen. So, listeners there, are you enjoying the hot summer? Swimming? Sunbathing? It's a year after a devastating wildfire season, so let's hope this year can be the first of many wonderful summers. And to our listener in Malaysia... Who are you? Send me a note and tell me about yourself. And also, do you have a connection to Sheila Majid? I'd love to have her on the podcast. For anyone who doesn't know her, she's a pop singer known as the Queen of Jazz. I'll include a link to her singing in the show notes. Go listen and thank me later because you'll probably become obsessed. Wherever you're listening from and whoever you are, welcome and thank you for listening and supporting our mission to help artists understand finance. A special thank you to our patrons who get early access to the show, bonus content, and discounts at our merch store where we sell coffee mugs and beach towels. At the moment, the beach towels might only make sense for those Southern Hemisphere listeners, but the coffee mugs are good for everyone especially those Canadians drinking moose milk. If you want a discount to all our merch, please become a patron. Patrons make this show happen and allow it to grow. So if you are able to support in that way, please do. You can find more information at patreon.com slash artisticfinance. Today's bonus audio is a discussion about negotiating pay from the viewpoint of either a designer or a general manager an important conversation for any freelancers. And now to today's guest, who is Joe Longthorne, a producer, general manager, and theatrical entrepreneur. He is a managing partner at Fourth Wall Theatricals, a firm specializing in general management, ticket inventory management, and Broadway group sales. Joe produced Alexis Shear's Our Dear Dead Drug Lord with The Women's Project and Second Stage. He co-produced the band's visit on Broadway, for which he won a Tony Award. And Joe is founder of Creative Finance with Broadway Joe, a financial blog for those in the arts industry. He asked me to write a post for the blog, which I did, talking about the things I've learned from all these interviews. It came out today, 
And there's a link to it and links to everything we discuss in the show notes or at artisticfinance.com. When I was thinking about what to write about, I realized that nearly everyone I've interviewed has advised against the use of credit cards. Since I subscribed to Joe's blog, I knew he had written about them. So I asked him if he would join us today to talk about the really, really, really unsexy topic of credit card debt. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Joe Longthorne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so good to be here. This is November 16th, 2020. So we're amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we're also amidst the Black Lives Matter reawakening across the world. Could you sort of give us a recap of your life and your career to where we find you today? I grew up in northern New Jersey. Eventually, uh, through my love of theater, found my way to Boston Conservatory in Boston, where I was a BFA musical theater major. So the early part of my career was sort of all spent in performing. Uh, I was a, I was an actor at the time, went through Boston Conservatory's program, came back to New York, to the Tri-State area, auditioned for shows, did some regional jobs, had the opportunity to travel to Japan for four months and as a singer, which was an incredible experience. And along the way, sort of found my interest in producing theater and general management, the backstage part of it all. Was lucky to co-produce some shows on Broadway that have done well, eventually built up a general management business, fourth wall theatricals, uh, specializing in general management, Broadway ticket inventory management, and group sales. Then this summer, I, you know, with my interest in personal finance, decided to start this blog, Creative Finance with Broadway Joe, to create a space for actors, artists, designers, directors, anyone in between, all kinds of creative folks to, to learn about personal finance, the intersection of art and finance, and how they could adopt better strategies for a more fruitful future. You know, sort of the things um, that aren't taught at BFA programs, but you and I have both found to be so important. Well, you're, you're providing tools, which I think is wonderful. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to generate conversation. To me, there's a thousand ways to do it. But the important thing is we have to talk about it. So I absolutely love your blog for that. Thank you. Yeah. And I think we both agree that the subject of money has always been so taboo and it doesn't need to be, you know, knowledge is power. And the more we, we either offer tools or have conversations, I think folks uh, have an ability to really change the direction of where they're headed with, with money. Absolutely. Ignoring it doesn't help anybody. No, definitely not. Not in all the research we've found. <laughs> you're, you're a little bit of a unique guest in that you're on here today to talk about credit card debt and paying off credit card debt. I'm still going to ask you some questions for us to get to know you before we get started. Could you describe your demographics to us? Oh, sure. Why not? So I'm 30 years old. I just turned 30 this past April. I identify as white. I'm white Caucasian from the United States. I'm currently single. So, you know, if there's a, a female sort of single listeners out there, uh, eligible bachelor alert. That's fantastic. I think I can start an artistic finance dating site. <laughs> For those of you who are interested in finance, please meet your partner here. <laughs> I, I know you as a GM slash producer. I didn't realize you came from an acting background. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, when I look around the industry, I just notice, especially the young professionals I work with, the colleagues and contemporaries I know, so many of us have started in performance. And for me and for others, it's like the gateway. It's you sort of look up on stage and you think, oh, I love that experience. I love what's, what I'm watching, what's happening to me right now. And I want to be a part of it. So we, at least I started, you know, as thinking, well, I'll be a performer. I can get up there and I can do the thing. 
And then you learn how multifaceted this industry is and how many different parts of it there are. Uh, and for me, you know, I've always been a realist in thinking I want to do the thing that I know that I'm the best at and potentially better at other folks then. And after a couple of years of, of some professional experience, I came to learn that that was not performing. There are folks out there that do it much better than I can or will. And I'm happy to sort of yield to them and occupy maybe a space where I, I have more knowledge and can help folks otherwise. As artists, people tend to do 10 different things throughout their life. But I think a lot of people start in acting. But a lot of times you can sort of tell that they come from an acting background. Like when you meet them, somehow I miss that entire thing that you were an actor ever. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Once upon a time I was, I'm big in Japan. That's, that's the key there. So I, I love the idea of going there and seeing like a poster of you up somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Okay. So to get to know your creative personality, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? Uh, great question. You know, I, I have always been in love with musical theater. Uh, I don't know if that's too obvious to say, but there's something about it, the the way a story can be told. You know, I had a professor in college that said this, and I do believe it to be true. It's like the beauty and the power of musical theater is you are, as an audience member, you're sitting and you're absorbing a story and processing an emotion. And that in itself is a beautiful thing. But when a musical, you know, a song starts in a musical because the emotion for the character is so overwhelming that they can't just say it, they have to sing it. There has to be music that comes along with it. And I find that notion to be incredibly beautiful and inspiring and something I love to absorb as an audience member as well. Yeah. Um, what is a piece of art that you like? Ooh, piece of art. You know, I'm really partial to, uh, maybe you know him, Chihuly. Dale Chihuly is a, um, a glass artist and uh, just happened that when I was in Boston at the uh, Museum of Fine Arts there in Boston, there was a Chihuly exhibit that came through my junior year. And I got to go with some friends and sort of witness what this man does. And uh, his work is breathtaking. Um, it really probably most popular, well known for his chandeliers. I think he does a lot of like hotel installments in, in Vegas and all different parts of the world. But it's really breathtaking work. It's just blown glass and uh, he's an incredible artist. It's like something that is really interesting and sort of striking to witness firsthand for me. It is beautiful. And I, I've seen it often in botanical gardens. Yes. It seems like everyone at some point has had a Chihuly exhibit yes. with blown glass next to similar yes. plants, similar flowers. Okay, so now jumping to your financial personality, are you bad or good with money? I was formerly bad with money, I would say. And then I do believe that everyone can learn at some point. And along the way I learned, and now I would say I'm probably pretty good with money. If you had to look back on your timeline, at what point would you be like, there is where I decided I was good? You know, it's and it, the answer is it's really only about a year and a half ago. It's not that far back in my timeline of adulthood. I see this a lot in my friends too. And I think when you approach 30 and I turned 30 in April, uh, you start to think about your life differently. You start to think literally the twenties are over and you know, you're sort of, your youth is behind you in a way. And I still feel like we're both, we're pretty young people, but you start to think about what the future is going to be. And for me, you know, turning 30 is a chance to evaluate a decade in your life. And so when people ask me, what does it feel like to turn 30? It's like, well, I can only really think of what it felt like to be 20, actually, and how different I am 10 years later. And it starts to make me think about what I'm going to be when I'm 40 and how I'll feel when I'm 50 and 60. Uh, and you really start to take life seriously as a long story and a long journey. 
and you start to look at the people that are in your life that are already into their older age and you think what is this later phase of life offering them now and and what will I want and need and how will I live when I get to that point and so you know, the way it hit home for me, obviously, is you start to take finance and personal finance very seriously. That's amazing because I remember being 21 and reading in Money Magazine, if you start at age 18 and you save $5 a day, you'll be a millionaire by the time you're 60. And I was like, 21, I'm three years too late. I got to get going here. I know. And that's, you know, I think about that a lot. It's the hardest thing in the world to convince a young person the power they have, the power of time and of compound interest. But uh, if you can connect and you can make them sort of understand all the power and potential there, um, gosh, those are your biggest allies, aren't they? Uh, Time and compound interest can do so much for you. Last week's guest, Stan Kay, that was the point he really wanted to emphasize was start young, start young, compound interest. Okay. Do you, Joe Longthorne, do you worry or think about money on a daily basis? Yeah, I would say I don't necessarily worry about it, but I think about it on a daily basis. Absolutely. And there are good and bad, there are pros and cons there, you know, in thinking about money constantly. One might look at it and say, well, if you're thinking about it constantly, then it's it's actually some kind of addiction that you need to shake and you need to sort of get that out of your mind so you can enjoy the other pleasures in life. But I don't know, I, for me, it's a, it's a good practice and a good system to to think about it every day. I am the kind of person now that I track everything to the penny. I track exactly how much I make and how much I spend on a daily basis. And it's super important in my long-term planning to understand exactly you know, what my snapshot day by day looks like. So I enjoy it. I actually do get joy from the process of thinking about it. So yes, I, I'm an everyday kind of person. And I don't think you have to be. You know, I think my advice to folks would be, you can think about it every week. You can set a system where you're checking in with yourself once a month, but to have a regular practice of staying in tune with what's going on financially in your life is super important. And I know on your blog, you emphasize tracking your expenses. Like you'll throw into all the posts. Are you tracking your expenses yet? Are you tracking your expenses yet? For me, I've never been one to track them steadily. But what I will say is that if you track them for a short period of time, at least, you then sort of start to see trends, you start to know yourself. I think so. I think as an exercise, absolutely. I think if folks were to just do one month, you know, what would happen is at least it happened for me and it's happened for people I've talked to, you are surprised by the result. I think, you know, oftentimes people understand exactly what they're doing month in and month out. uh, And then you sort of look at everything microscopically and all of a sudden you realize, oh no, I'm off by a bit. I'm off by a couple, maybe a hundred dollars, a couple hundred dollars. And if there's little room for error, it's just important to be on top of it and to sort of be disciplined. So yeah, I think like as an exercise, just even doing a month can be super helpful to someone. Yeah. Um, David Bach in his book, The Automatic Millionaire, he tells a story about how, because his thing is the latte every day or the Starbucks every day. The latte factor, yeah. Yeah, the latte factor. Thank you. So he's that guy. And so of course he goes on all these news programs to talk about this there's some TV hosts that make plenty of money, right? And he said he went on and the TV host sort of got angry at him and got pushed back and was saying like, are you kidding? Just by tracking my expenses, like that's not going to make somebody become a millionaire. Or that's not like, so he, he got pushback from a specific host. And he said he like talked to the host a year later, the host off air said, yeah, so I looked at my expenses and I was spending upwards of $10,000 just going to dinner, like after work. So anyway, so it's it's not a, no matter how much money you make, this is something that's important to everybody. 
Yeah, I think, you know, on the psychological side of it, uh, granted, I am no expert in this area, you know, psychologically, but I think you start to convince yourself otherwise, you know, if you're not looking at it and tracking it specifically, you will mentally create roadblocks to allow you to spend more money. You know, I could think of the way I was before I became as disciplined as I feel like I am now, but you start to make excuses. You say, oh, well, no, I haven't really done that that many times this month. You know, I haven't gone out and bought a latte at, at the local coffee shop or at Starbucks. But if you look at it and it's like, oh, I actually did it twice as many times as I thought I did. And that's where it starts to creep up on you by not looking at it sort of specifically you start to create uh, excuses or allow yourself the chance to go out and spend a little bit more money than you should otherwise. Okay, so now let's get to the discussion that we're all here for today. Yes. <laughs> Paying off credit card debt. So you reached out to me and you said, hey, will you write a guest post on my creative finance Broadway Joe blog? So what I did was I thought, okay, well, I've had, you know, about 50 interviews. I'll look and see, you know, what do people keep saying? One of the themes that came up was credit card debt. This is not something that I have had an issue with in my life. Like in my total life, I've maybe forgotten to pay my credit card like once or twice a month, but I don't consider that credit card debt. Like I had the money, I just forgot to pay. So this is not something I went looking for in my podcast, but almost every guest has cautioned against the use of credit cards. I noticed that you have actually a couple blog posts about credit cards. And so I thought, well, this would be perfect for Joe to come here and tell us what you know about credit card debt. Oh, I would be thrilled to. The subject of credit cards, this is a doozy. So yeah, here's the thing. I mean, credit card, credit cards are potentially, you know, these amazing assets, these amazing vehicles we have where you can spend money on credit. You can, you know, in my world, like getting rewards from a credit card. I mean, I pay for most of my vacations with credit card points. I am able to use those points for any number of things, tickets, hotel rooms, groceries. Um, so there is a real asset there. On the other hand, you know, I think credit card debt specifically is probably one of the great American crises that, that we do not talk about. Um, it's a tricky, slippery slope credit card debt because once you get into it, then it's really hard to claw your way out. Uh, in the same way that compound interest can be so good for you in investing, the same mathematic principle can really be awful for you on the credit card side. If you start to accumulate a bill that is accumulating interest, the whole thing will sort of snowball out of control eventually if you're not diligent in paying it off. So there are pros and cons here in talking about credit cards. What I find, you know, is that it's actually a lot more common than people think. I think one thing I've noticed about credit card debt uh, when I've had some myself, when I see friends going through it, is that you feel like you're it's the only happening to you. When in reality, if you look around the room and everyone who was in a little bit of credit card debt had to raise their hand, I think you'd see a lot of hands go up in the air. So there is a little solidarity in, in knowing that it's not just a personal experience necessarily. It's a cri I do believe it's a crisis that, that our, our society is going through um, and we have to sort of educate. We have to put the tools in people's hands to get out of it and then stay out of it. That's why, again, it goes back to keeping a budget. Uh, the best way to not overspend is to know exactly what you're spending. But yeah, credit card debt can be really, really tough to deal with. Yeah. Just in case folks are sort of unaware of the grand picture here, credit card, you know, you are spending money that you don't technically have. You're, you're borrowing money from a bank in essence. So anytime you swipe your credit card, you are accumulating this bill. And uh, then at the end of each month, the bank is going to come ask you for that money. 
Um, but the whole idea, they're offering you money on credit. They're essentially running a tab for you. And then it's your job to pay the tab or they're going to charge you this interest rate on the money that you haven't paid back yet. But maybe that's a good way of saying it out loud and framing it is, you know, to completely understand how a credit card works. It's a gentle reminder to yourself that you are borrowing money from from a group and an institution. Typically, if we're talking about like a Chase or Bank of America, this is a conglomerate that does not care about you. It doesn't care about you as the person. Um, they are, they're willing to lend you this money and then they're going to pay a premium if you can't pay it back right away. Since you phrased it as credit card is borrowing money, which is totally true, totally true, because the way I view it is I'm always thinking it's my money that I'm using the card to pay for, but that's not actually true. I'm borrowing the money to pay for it until I pay that money. But it's different than a mortgage or an auto loan, because those tend to carry, I guess, lower interest rates. Because we think like, oh, a, a car is something you absolutely need to function. And then we think a house, that's growing your wealth. So I guess that debt is sort of looked at as like a good thing that we need, but credit card debt is a bad thing. You've yeah, sort of touched on it very nicely. So the difference being it's good debt and bad debt. And the reason we sort of define it that way is, again, it speaks back to, you know, how are we preparing for retirement? How are we saving enough money to sort of enjoy the financially free part of our life. Um, if you're investing in the stock market, you are hoping, anticipating, you know, I think most folks would say you could hope for an average return of eight, 9% on your investments versus credit card debt. You know, a lot of these credit card companies are going to charge you upwards of 15, 16, 17, sometimes as high as 20 and above percent on your credit card. The whole thought here being you will never be able to keep up with that. The money that you've invested in the stock market, if you're getting an 8% return and your credit card's charging you 18%, that credit card debt is going to snowball and build up uh, much faster than your investments could ever keep up with. Um, so that is bad debt versus, to your point, a good debt. We can talk about a mortgage or student loan considered good debt because, yes, you're borrowing at a much lower rate. You're borrowing it you know, hopefully as close to 3%, 3.5%, so that in theory, your investments are still outpacing your debt. But you have this good debt. If it's a home mortgage loan, then you are, yes, you're paying into home equity. So that's the money that you're paying towards your mortgage loan every month is still part of your net worth. So yeah, that's a very good distinction to make, I think, the difference between good debt, bad debt. And, and it really speaks to sort of what we hope to accomplish in our investing in the stock market in theory. Okay, now, now that you're saying it and listening to it, <laughs> I'm like, a credit card at 18% just sounds atrocious to me. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's commonplace. Like, I mean, that's where the numbers sit. And it's, yeah, it's a hard thing to stomach. Because I think for me, like I pay off my credit card every month. So I'm thinking, well, the interest rate doesn't really matter to me. If I forget then it really is going to matter really soon. <laughs> yep, yep. In terms of paying off debt, you know, what is the best strategy there? And it's something I've written about. There are two sort of mainstream strategies, uh, a very simple one would be the avalanche method. One is the snowball method in terms of paying off debt. With the avalanche method, you are paying the minimum on all your cards. In theory, if you have a couple of credit cards that might be carrying balances, you're paying the minimum on all of them, but then you're paying any extra money you have towards the card with the highest interest rate, because long-term that is going to save you the most money in paying down your debt versus the snowball method, not uh, as mathematically advantageous, but psychologically has a whole different component to it. The snowball method, you're actually paying off the card that has the lowest balance first. So you can just wipe that card clean, 
don't have to think about it. And then you're on to the next one, so on and so forth. I prefer the snowball method. I found that that sort of seems to make more sense, especially in a community of artists. I mean, we are an emotional community, an emotional industry, and and money is emotional, you know, and I'm sure that's come up before in your interviews and it's come up before in my conversations with folks, but there's an emotional aspect to it that if you can win an emotional battle in paying down these debts and sort of being proactive about it, that has just as much merit as you might save a little bit with money long-term or not. Dave Ramsey, who a lot of people know, yep. <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a fan of him, but that's a, that's a side note. <laughs> um, but he sort of only allows for the snowball method. He just ignores the avalanche method. And he says the only way to pay is the snowball method. And it is because of that psychological reason of if you don't see yourself making progress, you're just going to stagnate. Yeah. And I can agree with him there. I think you're right. I don't agree with everything, but that's, you know, to me, it seems to make sense. Yeah. Let's say you have three different credit cards. Is it worth it to sort of combine everything? Like, like, aren't there companies that you can put it all with them and then just pay them like a singular loan? Yeah. So there's a couple options there. Um, one of the more common uh, options here would be certain companies will offer you the chance to transfer your balance to a new card uh, at 0% interest for, let's say, 18 months. So yeah, sometimes, you know, when folks have credit card debt, that is a great option. The fact that you could take this balance sitting on a card that has a high interest rate, 18, 19%, transfer it to a 0% card, it now gives you 18 months at no interest to pay off this card. Conversely, you know, another option out there would be there are these groups that offer loans that offer sort of big, big loans to you at a, at a, what we call a good debt rate, like it's a three, 4% loan. They provide all the money up front. You can pay off your cards and then you're just making one monthly payment back to this company um, at the end of the day. I think the going to a no interest strategy is a great way to go. You know, that's, it really offers you the time and flexibility to sort of pay the debt down methodically um, without getting all those big interest rates on top of it. There is, a, I suppose, a caveat to say, though, is like if there's a fundamental problem, then transferring the balance to a new card might not help you, you know, then you run the risk. If you, if you're not in charge of your spending and you don't understand how you got there in the first place, the danger there is you transfer your balance to a new card and then your original card, which was carrying maybe a couple thousand dollars worth of credit card debt is now wide open again and you can go back to spending on it. Um, so that's the catch. If there is a catch there, it's that, you know, uh, you need to change fundamentally. It's like going on a diet, uh, Atkins, South Beach, or whatever they're called. And and you might lose 30, 40 pounds right away. But then if you get off the diet, you go back to doing what you were doing and put all that weight back on, then what's the point? I think the same thing applies to credit card transfers here. If you're going to transfer the money to a no interest card, you want to fundamentally uh, get on top of the problem before you actually do that so that you've changed your habits and you're not putting yourself in an even worse position at the end of the day. And I'm really glad you reached out to me because it made me think about credit cards, which is something like, it's just a topic I don't want to talk about. Even though I have a podcast talking about money, <laughs> it's one of those subjects that I don't like. And the reason is it's just with any debt, it's like the only solution is to pay off the debt. We can talk about snowball versus avalanche versus giving it to a different loan company at a lower interest rate, but the reality is you have to pay it off. So you cannot continue on in your life. No matter what we say, no matter how much we talk about it, you still have to pay off that debt. Yeah. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, there's no magic wand. That's the other thing. I think, you know, you sort of, when you're in that position, you desperately hope that something or someone or some miracle will come along and wipe it all away. And it's not going to happen. It starts with the person. It starts in you. And so developing those habits, you know, I guess it's a great sort of time to touch on like, why, how does this even happen to people? You know, it's something I've sort of addressed in the blog as well. How do you find yourself in that position? And it's because you learn to be comfortable with debt. You learn to carry debt and you say, oh, my balance, you know, should be at zero every month, but yeah, now it's at a thousand dollars and I don't really have the ability to pay it off this month, but that's okay. It's not so bad. I got charged, you know, a little bit of interest, but I can, I can live with that. I can stomach that. And once you start to be comfortable in that situation, is the danger zone. It's when you start to sort of go down the wrong path. So you have to sort of retrain the mind eventually to become uncomfortable with debt and 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 want to be out of it because it does take a lot of hard work and effort. And that's one of my complaints about student loans, the way we treat those in this country. It, it bothers me that we let people start their lives in debt because they have no choice but to be comfortable in debt. I think that's just a slippery slope of well, I have $100,000 of debt already starting out in my life. So it's just a way of life. It's the same way you can't convince an 18-year-old how important investing is. You know, it'll be hard to convince that same person how detrimental sort of a gigantic student loan debt uh, debt load could be for them. Uh, and I completely agree. You know, I, I personally have just made the decision in the past couple of months to start grad school. So I'm doing an online MBA program starting in January. Uh, with the University of Illinois, one of my biggest sort of things that was important to me in this process was not taking on enormous student loan debt. So they have a very reasonably priced program um, was very important to me because I can see firsthand how that tremendous student loan debt it can carry that for such a long time and it can be such a, a big part of personal finance. Do you have an opinion on this? Say somebody has an IRA or a 401k. Let's just say there's $10,000 in there let's say they have $3,000 worth of credit card debt. Would you ever suggest that somebody pull money out of their IRA or 401k and pay off the credit card debt? Baseline, what I would recommend, put a gun to my head, I, you know, one answer. The answer is no. Don't touch your retirement. Don't mess with your retirement. Once you take it out, okay, so we're going to do the caveat later, but typically once you take it out, you cannot put it back in. And so you've lost all this ability for the money that's in there to grow and compound and to you know grow on itself and become something really significant. The caveat is now in the time we're in the pandemic, when the CARES Act was passed, there is a provision in there that says you can now borrow money from your retirement account, your 401k or your IRA, and you can borrow it penalty free if you are able to repay it in a three-year window. So with a caveat, I say, you know, if you need that money to pay off that debt, that is actually an option for you. I, I, would, I could see a world in which it makes sense for someone in this example you provided to take a $3,000 withdrawal to pay their debts. But then I would have to say, and I double down on this, putting an emphasis on trying to make a plan to then put the money back into that account over the course of the next three years, you know, at $1,000 a year. But you just don't want to lose out on that time and the ability for that money to grow and compound wealth in that account for you. It, it, it goes to why I hate talking about this, because it's like if somebody needs to take it to pay off the debt, like it's not a good situation. So, OK, you take it out penalty free. Woohoo. But unfortunately, 
you then lose three years of time or however long it takes you to repay that you've lost that time. Yeah. So the thing is, it cannot be a band-aid, you know, again, you have to fix the problem, you know, and this can't just be a band-aid solution that helps you out of this little pickle. But then, you know, let's say you're, you have, you have a reckless sort of habit and uh, all of a sudden a year later, you find yourself back in the hole with another $3,000 in debt, but now you only have $7,000 in your retirement it's no good. You know, you need to address the problem first uh, at the base level. Um, but it could be, this could be a solution on the road to recovery for sure. In order to keep it positive, I do want to say to people listening that credit card debt is a common thing. If you have it, you're not alone. You know, it is the American way after all. To touch on the compound interest, this this is an example from our last episode, which is a penny doubled every day for 28 days will get you to over a million dollars. When you look at that in retirement, you think, okay, if I can double the penny every year for 28 years, I will have that million dollars for retirement. Obviously, easier said than done, but the time factor early on is that money will compound and help you get to your goal. So that way, when you're in the final years, the 24th, 25th year, it's not that you're putting in that crazy amount of money. It's that the principal is now helping you get more money. The reverse is true with credit cards. If you have credit card debt, paying off a little bit is going to help you a lot as time goes on. If it's overwhelming, paying the minimum, paying $10 over the minimum, paying $50 over the minimum, if it's $10,000 total debt and you're only paying $20, yes, that's a tragedy. However, it still will compound. So every little piece that you're doing is helping it compound and helping that principal not compound as much as it would. If you make a plan and you can stick to the plan, then there's real possibility there. Doing a little bit extra what could save you hundreds, thousands of dollars potentially. And it's math. You know, at the end of the day, I, I like to remind people it's not hocus pocus, it's not magic, it's just math. Uh, again, so if you can sort of give yourself a little bit extra, it goes a long way. And on the investing side as well, you know, to sort of keep it positive, I think one misconception folks have about retirement is that retirement is something that happens to you when you're 60 or 65, like that there is an age attached to it the way it is, because that's what we see happen sort of 90% or more of the time in American culture. The only sort of fun thing to insert there is like you and I probably know folks that have been on the podcast about FIRE community, the term FIRE, financial independence, retire early, sort of this like crazy idea that you could shell away huge amounts of your of your paycheck, you know, upwards of 60-70% and then there are people in this community that are retiring when they are 30 years old, our age, you know, or younger even or in their early 30s. It just goes to again show the power of compound interest that both the pros and sort of what you can do on the investing side and then if you apply it to paying down debt, uh, it really goes a long way in sort of softening the blow and, and getting out of that hole all the all the quicker. You and I are over 30. If you're 30, over 30, and you're just getting to this and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I can never be part of the fire community because I'm already in my 30s. No, you can still, like even starting in your 30s is better than starting in your 40s. Starting in your 40s is better than starting in your 50s. Starting in your 50s is better than starting in your 60s. (laughs) And then of course, like especially in the artistic community, nobody ever wants to retire. I always say plan for retirement. Oh, we'll, you know, your, our bodies are going to stop working and we won't be able to physically work anymore, but is anybody really going to retire? So it's not like you have to retire, retire. You can sort of factor a little bit 
of working in there, you know? Sure. It's, you know, uh, thinking about what I want to do as a producer and the kind of career I want to have, that's exactly right. Uh, I hope to be working in theater for a long, long time. I could see myself producing well into my old age. I see mentors and folks in the industry that I look up to that are producing, uh, we'll call it an advanced age, and they're doing amazing work. It's that's so exciting. I think the benefit here in treating finance seriously in saving effectively and really understanding you know, how to use these retirement accounts to your advantage is you can actually get to a place, to a plateau where you are not working for your money necessarily. You know, you're working, it's strictly for the passion, it's for, for the love of what you're doing and it, not being dependent on that paycheck, on that salary, then gives you the freedom to sort of explore any creative professional artistic outlet that you want. I mean, how nice would it be to, to find yourself in, let's say you're in fire and you're pursuing something like this aggressively, all of a sudden you're in your thirties and your forties and you don't need to, to work for the paycheck to sort of support your bills and support your lifestyle. You've actually built a nest egg that affords you the ability to do all of it. That's a really exciting notion. Yeah, it applies everywhere, but in the arts specifically, um, yeah, we hope to work in this field for a long time, but having security to do that is just a really exciting notion, I think, too. Because we're talking about fire, so it's actually not anything we've talked about on the podcast. Let me ask you, have you found people in the arts that are also part of the fire community? No, not specifically. So I wonder if we should do a search at some point and see who's out there and who's like really pursuing this. It's hard. It's, 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 it's a thankless lifestyle in some ways. It, it demands a lot of discipline and a lot of respect. And, you know, when your friends are going out to bars and drinking after shows and maybe taking trips and, and whatnot, you know, you might not be doing that because you are, you have to stick to sort of this prescribed plan and what you've decided you've set out to do. So I don't know that it's right for everyone. It's an interesting idea. I think just to think about and to, and to learn about and to understand. And again, it goes back to the latte factor, you know, like I am not a fire person necessarily, but, but I think about coffee like fire in my life. You know, I used to be the kind of person that would go to Starbucks twice a day. I'm spending upwards of eight, nine, $10 on coffee daily. And then I took a look at that when I started budgeting, I said to myself, oh, that is far too much money to spend on coffee because then the power of what that couple hundred, almost thousand dollars a year could do for my retirement, it just really hits home in a different way. So maybe you start to identify where fire exists in different parts of your life. And I think that's a really valuable way of looking at it. Every little bit helps. Like all those little things that we don't really think help why pay $10 extra on the credit card? It's not going to help me pay off the $10,000. No, it will. Like it will help you. Uh, I think side hustles are important too. It's not even something we have touched on or maybe have time for today, but I think diversifying your income, it can be really important so that you have income coming in from lots of different places and having a side hustle. If you can make $30 a day, just doing something extra, that's $1,000 a month, give or take, more or less. And then, so if that equates to $12,000 a year, if just that extra $12,000 a year, you take that and invest it, you can retire well before 60. You'll retire. I mean, I, everyone's financial snapshot is different in the way we spend money. But if you were investing $12,000 a year, then you'll be at fire in no time. Finding ways to diversify your income and then putting the gravy, as it were, like into something useful, like a, a tax advantaged account for retirement, it goes a really long way. In the artistic world, well, the artists I've talked with, 
money isn't super important to people. That's part of the reason I haven't found any fire people because it's not their concern per se. It makes me think of my Swedish grandma, actually, who believes in lagum, that you only take just what you need from life. And I think that's a really nice way of thinking of it. Yeah, for sure. Two more questions before we wrap up. What can we do, you and I, to stress the importance of finance and savings to our fellow artists? Such a good question. It, it is what we are trying to do, isn't it? I mean, the most valuable thing that any of us will have is the knowledge. We just need to talk about it. It, it makes me sick that, that money and finance is such a taboo subject in the world we live in because there is so much power in understanding it and knowing how to use it to your advantage. So I would advocate this for ourselves and for anyone we come in contact with and the folks that come to our podcast and, and blog and want to learn more about finance, spread the word. You know, Don't be afraid to talk about money with your contemporaries. It's going to be sort of the difference maker in the end. It's, it's how you know, we'll get to the finish line with knowledge. Last question. Where can people find out more about you? All right. Well, they got to go to my website, my blog, www.creativefinancebroadwayjoe.com. That's all one word. New content there every week. Um, we're getting into doing some cool stuff now. Ethan's going to be on as a guest writer. We're super excited about that. So head over to creativefinancebroadwayjoe.com to see the great content from our friend Ethan. It's available for you. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. I really loved it. Yeah, this is a great time. Thank you for having me here. I am super inspired and excited about the work that you're doing on this podcast. So I'm glad to be here. That was our interview with Joe Longthorne. My takeaways were track your expenses. You don't have to do it perfectly, but it will help you learn about yourself so that you can know you better and make more informed financial decisions. The only way to pay off a credit card is to make a plan and pay off the credit card. There's no other way. The avalanche method, paying off higher interest debt first, is mathematically better, but isn't as motivating. The snowball method, tackling the smallest debt first, seems to be the preferred method for emotional humans, which is all of us. Thank you again to the patrons who support this show. On Patreon for this episode, Joe and I discuss negotiating pay from the viewpoint of either a designer or a general manager. You can access that audio over at patreon.com slash artistic finance. I find that discussion worthwhile for designers. So if you are a designer or freelancer and don't want to financially commit to becoming a patron, email me directly at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com and I'll share the audio with you. Was this episode interesting and did we leave anything out? Let us know by leaving a comment on Facebook or Instagram at Artistic Finance or on my Twitter at Ethan Stimel. And be sure to check out my post on Joe's blog at creativefinancebroadwayjoe.com. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. 
Music by Chang Liu.